0: Good morning, it's, it's so great to see you guys this morning, uh, what a blessing it is to worship together. Today we're picking up in the book of Revelation chapter 15, um, if you don't have a Bible there should be one near you in one of the chairs in front of you, I encourage you to turn there, uh, we are going to look at the text this morning and we are going to dive in and uh, have it speak to us Is God's word. Revelation fifteen, one through eight. Here the Apostle John describes again what the Lord shows him. Fifteen verse one. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels. With seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, plagues clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever." And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray. God, we pray that you give us eyes to see by faith this morning. As we grapple with the visions that you're showing us in the book of Revelation, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's confusing. But God, we know that you have given us a promise of a blessing for those who read the prophecy of this book and who believe and obey it. So God, I pray that this morning that you would help us have eyes to see, that you give us faith to, to believe the things that we cannot see. Help us to trust in you more. God, we pray that this morning through your word that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would encourage those who may feel weak, that you may spur on or convict those who may be kind of veering off from you, God. We pray that you do the work, or we are, there's many of us here who are laboring this morning who are working to preach or to do sound or to play songs or to be here and to encourage one another, but God, we know that all the labor is in vain unless you, O Lord, build the house. So we pray, Lord, this morning that you'd build our house, that you'd build the house of our hearts, that our church will be built up by your Holy Spirit, by your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're picking up in the book of Revelation in chapter 15. And our, our passage, you may have noticed, is broken up into three visions that John sees in heaven. If you look at the text, you'll see the re- repeated phrases then I saw, or and I saw, verse 1, then I saw, verse 2, and I saw, verse 5, after this I looked. It's the same word in the Greek. So there's three visions that John sees here. And as we've noted in the book of Revelation, Revelation is full of symbolism, of, of, of pict- word pictures. The images John sees here are meant to point us to a reality that we currently don't see. And maybe we don't see right here on earth, in the earthly life. And this week, I had the opportunity to go to Kansas City to a pastor's retreat, and uh, our oldest two girls came along with us. While we were there, we went to the World War I Memorial. Has anyone been there in Kansas City? It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's, it's really amazing. You know, while we were there, seeing the memorial and seeing the museum, also seeing the horrors of war was really sobering. As, as I learned, I should have learned this back in history in school, I'm sure, but I forgot, an estimated 20 million people died in the war and another 21 million people were wounded. And as I walked through the museum and showing it, there's nothing quite like war that that highlights the depravity and the sinfulness of man, the brokenness of our world. And while we were there, I also noticed that there was unique architecture. There was a big memorial, and there was things surrounding the memorial. And I wondered, what what does this mean? What do these things mean? Somebody built this, and they built it for a purpose. So that made us start to wonder, what does the symbolism mean? So we started to research. We got the pamphlet. We opened it up, and we learned that these two giant Assyrian sphinxes, one on the left and one on the right, were a memorial. Both of them had wings over their faces. These two sphinxes said in the pamphlet, they guard the south entrance of the Liberty Memorial. One's name was Memory. And Memory faces east toward the battlefields of France. And it's shielding its eyes from the horror of war. So on one side, you had a great sphinx with its wings over its face, shielding its eyes from the horror of war. On the left, the sphinx was called Future. This faces west, and it's shielding its eyes from an unknown future a future war. In the middle of the two giant sphinxes is this giant tower 217 feet tall and carved into this tower there are four guardian spirits they're called, carved in the very top. And it's said that these guardian spirits are watching over the memorial from the top of the tower. As protectors of peace each guardian holds a sword and it's named for the virtue it represents. Honor is one, courage is another, patriotism is another, and sacrifice is the fourth. And as we looked at this monument, and all this imagery, it made me think of the book of Revelation. It's like this is exactly what the book of Revelation looks like. You walk up and you see some sphinxes with their wings covering their face. You see a memorial with with giant people carved on the top. And if you wouldn't, if you just glance at it, you wouldn't know it means anything other than it's pretty cool. But the more you dig into it, you see the meaning And the imagery, and that's what we find in the book of Revelation. These pictures mean something. The scenes God shows John in Revelation have great significance. And today we see three of these images, these scenes in heaven. First, let's look at Revelation 15.1. John says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them... The wrath of God is finished. The first thing he sees is a sign in heaven showing that the end is near. You guys may have seen the the videos or people in the streets, the end is near sign. That's kind of what he sees here, the end is near. And John describes this first scene he sees in heaven is a great and an amazing sign. Seven angels with seven plagues. Uh, as, we're, as I'm looking through the book of Revelation, trying to figure out how does this all fit together, back in chapter 12, verse 1, there was the first great sign that John saw. That sign was a woman clothed in the sun. Now he sees another great sign. This sign is seven angels with seven plagues. I was trying to figure out how do we illustrate this, and I thought the best way to illustrate this was what Pastor Justin did, was a scroll. Have the scroll piece of paper, right? All right, we're going to use it again today. So back in chapter 11, we had the seventh trumpet. Before that, a ways, we had the seven seals. So it was as if the seven seals, one seal, two seals, three seals, four seals, five seals, six seals, seven seals open. Well, you get to the seventh seal and you find seven trumpets in the seventh seal. We do seven trumpets, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in the seventh trumpet, there's no destruction, but you find seven bowls of wrath. And at the very end of the scroll, we have today this, the seven bowls of wrath. It says, "This, these are the last. With this, the wrath of God is finished. So we're, John here is pulling back into this narrative of judgment. And he is witnessing a final series of judgments that will take place before, as we will see in Revelation 16, what is called the Battle of Armageddon, and the return of Christ. This sign is amazing; it's, it's it's awe-inspiring, but it's also dreadful and foreboding. Notice what the angels have; they have seven plagues. And the word "plague" here means a sudden calamity that causes severe distress. These calamities, as we'll see in chapter 16, are different. They're not just like a disease, but they're a Sudden calamity that will cause severe distress. They could also be translated as great blows, blows of fate or blows from God. And as we see coming up in chapter 16, it is God's word that commands these seven plagues to be unleashed. Notice also the time marker. John says that these here are the last. These are the last. With these last plagues, God will complete his perfect anger against all injustice and sin in the world. So as I was going through the, the museum, I wondered, how long, how long, O oh Lord, until you come back? How long, how many more wars will we have until, Jesus, you come and make it all right again? Until you undo all evil and you bring perfect peace do you ever wonder that? Do you ever ask God that question? How long? Well, if so, you are in good company. In the, in the Psalms, there's two times where, where uh, David, King David, writes and he asks God in distress, God, how long until you make it all right? He says this in Psalm 6. Listen to his authentic, heartfelt cry to the Lord in his distress. He says this to God, Have compassion on me, Lord. For I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? Return, O Lord, and rescue me. Save me because of your unfailing love. For the dead do not remember you. Who can praise you from the grave? I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenched it with my tears. My vision is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because all of my enemies... This might be your experience, maybe. Maybe in here you're experiencing something like that emotionally or physically in your life. And there's many followers of Jesus around the world who are experiencing suffering like this, who may be crying out to God, drenching their bed in sweat and tears at night because of stress or anxiety or worry. But here John sees the day that God prepares to bring perfect judgment to everyone and everywhere who oppresses his people. Every disease and sin and calamity that corrupts his world. As I was pondering this, it was perfect yesterday, I got to go see the high school play of, uh, of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. They did a great job. And there was one line that stood out to me. It just hit me. I was like, oh, that's it. That's awesome. It said this, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Jesus is the true lion. He is coming back, and he is coming to make all the wrongs right. And you may wonder, will my suffering ever end? Is there an end to my sickness or an end to the sin or end to the war or end to the injustice in the world as we know it? And this passage says, yes, yes, there's an end coming. It's coming. It's right here on the pages of Scripture. God the Father has planned it out. Jesus will return. He will accomplish his plan perfectly. And I'm not sure if you've felt it before, but I know that I, when I'm suffering, I can spiral into pessimism, into anxiety, into, wor- into despair, into worry. And in that, we might start to think, God, are you ever coming back? Will you ever help me? Will you ever hear my prayers? And We might think, maybe, maybe he's never coming back at all. Maybe this world will never get better. On the other hand, when life is going well, I find myself maybe saying, don't come back yet, Lord. <laughs> I look forward to this thing. Remember when I was a kid, I was a teenager. I didn't want Jesus to return before I got to go on that ski trip I have been looking forward to. Please don't come back yet. I want to go skiing at Big Sky. No, I needed a bigger view of God's greatness and the all-encompassing, completely exhilarating joy of being with him. So if you don't long for heaven, if you're like, I'm loving life, I want to be in life here as long as I can, I want you to consider this. The best things that you love about life today The good things that you enjoy the most, the rest that you feel, the satisfaction that you find most enjoyable, these are God's ideas. These are God's things. Do you love hiking or skiing in the mountains? Do you love soaking in the sun on the beach or surfing in the ocean? God made those. Do you love adventure? That was God's idea. How about sports? It's God's idea. Do you love spending time with your family? Well, God designed the family, and he created each person you love so much. Even the greatest satisfaction that comes from friendship, marriage, or family relationships is only scratching the surface of the joy that we will one day experience with God in heaven. These things are little shadows. They're little tastes of the joy that will be perfect when we get there. That will never end. that will have no corruption or no stain of sin. It'll be It'll be wonderful. And all that leads us into the second snapshot that John sees here. It is the life after this life in heaven. Let's look at the second phrase of what John saw. Chapter 2 and 4. Next, he sees Christians. He sees Christians in heaven celebrating God's salvation. These are people like you and me now in heaven celebrating God's salvation. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So here in the second scene John saw, he saw what looked like a sea of glass. Remember back in chapter 4, he saw the sea of glass. It was like the, 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 the glass transparent pavement of heaven, like this calm, glassy sea pavement of heaven. But now we see mingled with fire. Which could be pointing to the judgment that God is pouring out on the earth. Notice here how John describes the people he sees in heaven. First, they're standing by this glassy, fiery sea. They're not being burnt up, they're not being consumed in the fire. They're standing beside it. They're not dead, they're not laying in a grave, but they're alive and they're well, standing. He says also, these believers are the ones who. who have conquered. They have conquered. Specifically, they've resisted the temptation, maybe the economic pressure, the deception of Satan to renounce Christ and to join the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. They have held fast to their faith in Jesus in the intense tribulation, even when threatened with death. This group of people could include the martyrs who were killed for their faith in Christ, or they could include people who just died and now are in heaven. They're like... Jesus wins. They remain faithful to Christ. Death did not beat them. Notice they're also holding harps. Now, a few weeks back, someone said that in heaven, we're not going to be just playing harps all the time. <laughs> did you guys hear that? I believe that's true, but we might be playing harps in heaven. Ah. In this vision, that's exactly what the people are doing in heaven is they're playing harps. So what can we gather from this? Um, first, it shows that in heaven, we will worship God with music. I think there's many more things we'll be doing in heaven except for playing harps, but that's just one thing we might do. But it's also, I think this might mean that God gives his people the ability to play a musical instrument. In the Greek word, the word for harp is a kithar, uh, kithara or "kitara. Sounds like a guitar, right? Well, a kithara is an ancient Greek folk instrument like a lyre. And it's kind of like a guitar. And I read this week that back in the day, the lyre was kind of for the beginners. They'd be playing the lyre. But the b- professionals, they would graduate to a kithara, or however you say it, kithara. That was for the pros. So, hey, if you've always wanted to be able to sing and play guitar, there's hope for you in heaven. And I bet, I bet that Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton, they'll have nothing on you in heaven. You'd be like playing that guitar like, like nobody on earth could ever imagine playing it. Well, Also in verse 3, we see that these victorious Christians are singing a song. The song, verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So not only do they play their instrument, they sing praises to God for his mighty deeds of justice and salvation. And like God used his servant Moses to deliver his people Israel from slavery, he's used his one and only son Jesus to deliver us, his people, from eternal consequences of sin and death. And as we look at this song, let's unpack it. What are they singing? And one of the cool things about the songs we sing is there's meaning. It means something. It's not just words we're saying. There's deep meaning. And the same here in Revelation, there's deep meaning. Let's look at what their song says. First off, verse 3, they praise God for his mighty deeds. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Sounds like what we sang this morning. Second, they praise God for his perfect character. They say, just and true are your ways. O King of the Nations, this first exclamation of praise focuses on God's greatness, His power, His omnipotence. God is all powerful. He uses His power for good and for His glory. And now, God's great power in this passage and His amazing deeds are are shown, are getting ready to be shown as He pours out the fierce plagues upon the earth against the beast and all who rebel against God. And through it all, God shows his great power as he can rescue his humble, weak people from what power seems so strong. He can rescue them even out of death. And now these believers are celebrating God's power and his victory over evil. Now, I want you to remember that as we go through Revelation, as we see these scary things that are coming up in, in chapter 16, and even the wrath of God talked about in chapter 15, Remember that as Christians, God has rescued us and will rescue us from all wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined us for wrath, beloved. He has not destined you and me for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who took the wrath? Who took our wrath? Jesus. Jesus took the wrath for us of God. There's no more wrath left for his people. So we, like these brothers and sisters in heaven, will be saved from the judgment to come and can sing even in the midst of the the judgment being poured out on the earth without fear. We can sing of God's greatness and his great rescue. And we look at the second exclamation here. It focuses on God's goodness. And I think that's something that we need to think about. We can see God's power displayed clearly in the book of Revelation, but we also need to remember God's goodness God's goodness, because sometimes these things look very scary. It's like this judgment is fierce, and it's worldwide. We need to remember God's goodness. Not only are his works amazing and powerful, but he is good. His judgments are just, and they are true. No one will receive any punishment or judgment that they don't deserve. As I was thinking about God's justice it made me think about our justice system in the United States. You know, our justice system and our Supreme Court is supposed to be morally right. It's supposed to be just and true. But as we know, sadly, our nation has immoral laws. Our nation has laws that are bad. And not only that, our highest judges, they're just like me and you. They're sinful humans. They make mistakes and they have biases. In contrast to them in in our our current system, God is perfect. Every decision God makes is perfect. His judgment is supremely just and pure. So God is great and God is good. And because of his greatness and his goodness, the next part of the song asks a question. The singers are asking a question. And they say this, they call out to us, Who will not fear, fear, O Lord? Who will not glorify your name? And the implied answer to this question is no one. No one should ever fail to fear God. No one could ever fail to recognize his greatness and goodness when they see him for who he truly is. These believers in heaven, now they have 2020 vision. They have lived. They have died. And now they're standing alive again in the presence of God. They can see what God has done. And they're telling us, they're telling us, hey, church, if you could see what I've seen, you would give glory to God too. If you could see all the suffering that I had to go through, but now being in heaven, you would know that Jesus is worth it. All the suffering was worth it. They would say that even though the world was against me, God was for me. And you should praise him in the midst of your suffering. And you might be wondering, why should I worship God right now? They're calling out, worship him. He's worth it. Worship him. Worship him. If you could see what I've seen, you should praise him. Well, why should we worship him? The, the, the last three lines of this song tell us. They tell us why everyone everywhere should worship God. They tell us why Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and agnostics, men, women, and children everywhere should worship Jesus and give him glory. Why? Why? Why do we worship him? Because God alone is holy. He alone is holy. There is none like him. He is the only true God. Everything else is an idol or dead or demonic. It's not true. There's only one God, one creator. He created it all, and everything else is a creation. We should not worship anything else except for the one true God. He alone is holy. Why else should we worship him? Well, we're told here because all nations will come and worship him. They will come and worship him. God is not just a local deity. He's not just the deity of Israel. He's not just a Jewish Messiah. He is the Messiah of the whole world. He's not just a, a, a deity of the United States. No, He is God over every nation, we're told in the song. And eventually, every nation will bow down to Him. It's what we're told in the book of Philippians, every knee will bow to Jesus. Why worship Him? Because you all will, everybody will one day fall down and worship Him either right now for salvation or later for judgment. The last thing we, know, we see here, they tell us to worship him because, we see in verse 4, because of his righteous deeds have been revealed. Worship him because you can look back in history and you see, God, you have done amazing things. I worship you for what you have done in history. If you could go back and you could be there when God parted the Red Sea back Remember back in Egypt, the Israelites, God saved them? If you go back and if you could see God save them, the Red Sea, he parts it like this, and it stands up as giant walls, and they walk across on dry land. Like, wow, that's amazing. They're safe, and they get to the other side, and then they see God allow the water to come back and destroy the Egyptians to rescue them from their slavery. I think we would be saying to everybody else, hey, everybody should give God glory. Everybody should worship God. I just saw that he just did that. He's amazing. Everybody worship him. If you could go back, and if you could see Jesus' earthly life, if you could see his miracles, how he healed the sick, uh, how he brought the dead to life, if you could watch as he was crucified, hung on the cross, died, was buried, And then on the third day, came back to life, hung out with you, walked around with you. You ate a a fish breakfast on the beach that was cooked by a fire. And then you saw Jesus transported back into heaven. You would say to everybody, you should worship Jesus, for his deeds are great. He's amazing. He is God. And that's exactly what the first disciples did. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John the Jewish leaders were trying to silence them and trying to tell them to stop talking about Jesus. Would you please stop talking about Jesus? And they called them and they charged them and said, don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Chapter 4, 18. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we've heard. If you saw what these people in heaven saw, you would too be wanting to speak and to tell everybody about what God did. Now, imagine if you go forward to the future and you could witness God's God's righteous judgment on the sinful world. And if you could experience him saving you from the persecution of the beast, rescue you from death, and transport you to heaven, and now you're there standing playing guitar by this glassy sea, you would also say... (laughs) Everybody, everywhere should worship this God. He is amazing. He is amazing. These believers in heaven, they have been there. They have done that, and they have the t-shirt. They have seen what we only see now by faith. They've experienced the difficulties of life that we're experiencing, and maybe even more, but now they're standing in heaven in the presence of God. They've received the salvation of their souls, and they're now saying and even singing to us today, fear God, fear God and worship him for his righteous acts of salvation and judgment. If you're like me today, you could probably use a renewed heavenly vision. I know I need a renewed heavenly vision. I need to be reminded of these things constantly. I need to remember that God is holy. He is alone. He only is God. Only he deserves my heart. My money doesn't deserve my heart. My ego does not deserve my heart. My comfort does not deserve my worship. God does. I need to be reminded that God is the king of all nations. And when I begin to feel awkward about telling people about Jesus, I need to remember that he is the king of all nations. He's the creator of everyone. I shouldn't feel awkward in telling people about Jesus. I also to remember, I need to remember his righteous deeds in history. And I need to look forward to his perfect deeds in the future so that today I can trust him with the everyday stuff of my life. So as we see this song, let us listen to the song of the redeemed, these saints, and let's sing along. Let's sing along with him. This brings us to the third vision John sees in heaven. Now this part is a little bit less harps and singing and more wrath and judgment. But all of this points God's perfect justice and goodness. John tells us again in verse 5 what he saw, verses 5 through 8. After this, listen to how he describes it. I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven, that would be where the Ten Commandments were held, was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. John witnesses the moment the moment when God's fierce anger and perfect justice is about to be unleashed from heaven to earth through these final seven plagues. With these last seven bowl judgments, as they're called, God will complete, finish, will be done all of his wrath against sinful humanity on earth. He will finish all evil. It will be done. Psalm 75.8 says this, It is God who executes just judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. We have a picture here that God has these bowls full of his wrath. He's giving them to the angels, and they're about ready to make all of sinful, wicked humanity that are in rebellion to him drink it. To the bottom. One day, God will execute perfect justice upon all those who have sinned against Him. The wicked will drink the cup of His fierce wrath. In vivid imagery, this passage shows us a strong contrast between joyful salvation, right? Singing in heaven, playing, worshiping, and fierce judgment. On Earth, there are only two options: joyful worship for those receiving God's salvation and mercy, and fierce judgment for those who reject God and His Son, Christ Jesus. But today, I, but today, there's good news. In the midst of the, the coming wrath of God, today there is good news. There is good news. You don't have to receive this judgment. There is mercy available. As Isaiah 53 prophesied, Jesus would receive the punishment and the calamity. The word is the same word, the plagues. He would receive the same calamity that we deserved on the cross. At his crucifixion, he was crushed for all who would believe in him. He drank it. He took the bitter cup, remember, in the garden. He said, Lord, if it's your will, remove the cup from me, but not your will, but not my will, but yours be done. And we see on the cross, he drank the cup all the way to the bottom. So we won't have to. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for all who would believe in him. So today, you don't have to be afraid of God's anger toward your sin. If you've never dealt with your sin, and if you're feeling this fear of, God's wrath, fear of God's fierce anger towards your sin. You don't have to worry about the punishment that you deserve for disobeying God. because Jesus has achieved forgiveness for you. He has taken it. He drank the wrath for you, the cup of wrath. So if you trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, today, in this very moment, you can have peace with God, as Romans 5:1 says. So my friends. If you're hearing this message today and you've never received the peace of God that he has offered you through the work of his son Jesus, I encourage you, trust in Christ. Be reconciled to God today. Receive his mercy and his forgiveness that he's holding out to you, that he's he's worked for, that he's earned, that he's saying, here, I want to give it to you as a gift because I love you. Take refuge in him today. And if you have trusted in God, Let's tell others about this good news. Let's tell others about what Jesus has done. Let's sing the song of the redeemed as loud as we can to all who can hear of the goodness and the greatness of God. Let's join the redeemed in singing the song of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision in heaven. Our life here on earth, it's very different from this. Sometimes we get caught up in the everyday things of life. We start to worry. We start to get anxious. We go, start to get fearful. We start to maybe stray from you. Now I pray that this vision will draw us back, that it will remind us of the truest reality of what is real and what will happen. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming for us to, to this earth, to living perfectly for us, Thank you, Jesus, for drinking the cup of God's wrath for us for our sin, forgiving us of all of our sin, paying for it on the cross. We praise you, Jesus, for beating death. And we look forward to you, Lord Jesus, coming again one day to save us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.